Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Well, good evening. Welcome to episode 000070 of The Mission. And on the mission each week, we look at issues that confront this country's First Nations people. We celebrate people on the front line, and together we learn about the stories behind the stories that most of the media don't cover. My name is Daniel James. I will be your host, broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands. And as we all know, Radio City Docklands is on the land of the Wurundjeri people from the Kulin Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, thank you to everyone that tuned in and all subscribed last week. It's um, been a great radiothon thus far. Um, we're, we're ahead of schedule in terms of the number of subscriptions we have, but we're not going to take our foot off the accelerator at all. So let's not forget that radiothon is still on until 30th of September. So if you want to subscribe or donate, head to rrr.org.au on your computer, tablet, or handheld device. And uh, look, um, while I'm here, I'd love to mispronounce some of your names live on air this, this evening if you um, feel like subscribing or donating. Maybe if you're inclined to um, subscribe, maybe you could tell us who's Landron as well. But regardless, your support is very, very much appreciated, not only by everyone that is involved in the station as either a broadcaster, volunteer or staff member, I'm sure it's appreciated by everyone that listens to the station as well. So judging by a lot of the messages that have come through over the last couple of weeks during Radiothon, Triple R seems to have played a major part in keeping people going during this testing period of our lives, our collective lives. And just on that... We are actually on track to uh, come out of this hard stage four lockdown. But two things need to happen. We need to go and get tested, even if we have the mildest of symptoms. The chief health officer and major spunk rat, according to some, Professor Brett Sutton said today that uh, we need to do more tests. We need to um, have more data before we can realistically contemplate open, opening up the place. So we need to do that. And the other thing that we need to do as well, of course, is ignore all the adult crybabies, usually men, pushing for things to open up again. And we also need to ignore the political opportunists here in Can and in Canberra trying to make us feel guilty, guilty about doing the right thing. So let's just stay the course and get the numbers down into the low double digits. It's from there that we can get on with our lives. And I personally have things to do, so... I need stage four to end, and I'm sure it's the same for you as well. But on tonight's show, um, my only, my one and only guest is the one and only Professor Marcia Langton. You may have seen in the news some weeks ago the giant mining company Rio Tinto, through an act of gross negligence and vandalism, blew up a 46,000-year-old sacred site, the Jukon Gorge Caves, which is a sacred site to the Purikunti Karamara and the Pinikura people, or the PKKP. Uh, Rio Tinto's actions reveal a lot about the way this country deals with its cultural heritage. So who better to speak to about these things than Marcia? 
I reckon she might be coming off the long run tonight, so stick around. It should be essential listening. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're listening to Triple R 102.7 FM, and this is the mission. Now, to tonight's one and only guest, she doesn't need much of an introduction, but I will afford her one anyway. Professor Marcia Langton AM is a descendant of the Yemen Binjara nations. She's an anthropologist and a geographer and since 2000 has held the Foundation Chair of Australia's Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne. She's long been one of Australia's leading intellectuals and provocateurs, but more than that, uh, and more importantly to the likes of me, Marcia has been a tireless and powerful advocate on a range of issues affecting Aboriginal people and communities all over the country. Last week, she made a submission to the Joint Standing Committee on Northern Australia's inquiry into the destruction of a 46,000-year-old 46, caves at the Jukan Gorge in the Pilbara region of uh, Western Australia. The destruction of the caves has raised a number of questions around cultural heritage, the preservation of places of high significance, the approval processes around some of these decisions, and the use of Indigenous land agreements. Marcia is on the line now to help us unpack all this. Marcia, welcome back to the mission. Absolute pleasure to have you back on. Thanks so much, Daniel. It's great to be able to talk to you about this very important matter, and I really appreciate the opportunity. First of all, um, for the people that might not be familiar with the caves and what Rio Tinto did to them, uh, give us a give us an overview of, as to what happened the Sunday before National Reconciliation Week. Uh, so uh, I'm not quite sure where to start the story because mm. Rio Tinto hasn't been forthcoming about uh, a lot of the detail. Uh, but uh, can I, first of all, we know that the traditional owners. Uh, went to the uh, Western Australia... Well, they went to Rio Tinto personnel. Um, they went to the Western Australia Minister for Cultural Heritage, and I believe they also spoke to another minister. Uh, the, the traditional owners are the Putu, Kunti, Kurama and Sinikura people. Mm-hmm. And uh, they their native title is recognised and they have a native title corporation, a prescribed body corporate, and they have an, they've had an agreement with um, Rio Tinto for some years, at least a decade. <coughs> um, I might have that date wrong, but uh, they also went to two federal ministers Knowing they knew that Rio Tinto had plans to uh, dynamite the caves, the gorge, and uh, they went to two federal ministers. Now, there is a procedure under the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, Heritage Protection Act, the Federal Act, mm-hmm. um, and also the um, EPBC Act, another federal act, uh, for a Commonwealth minister to override uh, a state minister on a matter like this. So they've got no help and no advice at the federal level. But what I also find um, very perturbing is is that apparently they were not able to make 
um, not only the application to the Commonwealth Minister, but an application in Western Australia for the site to be listed as, you know, very important heritage, very significant heritage. Mm. And so, as I understand it, uh, the native title representative body and the staff of their prescribed body corporate and their charitable trust did not assist them to to use all of the procedures that are available. And so they, they pleaded with Rio Tinto not to dynamite those sites. They had intended, as I understand it, to take uh, their young people to the caves during Reconciliation Week, you know, to show them their, their heritage. Um, and the, the point about these sites is not only are they... Ex- were, sorry, were extremely mm. sacred to the traditional owners, um, from what I understand, but also um, arch- some years earlier they had an archaeological um, group come in and do further research on the caves and the archaeologists found a, uh, a human hair belt. Yeah. Um, and, and this was, um, you know, dated thousands of years ago. And they were able to take DNA out of the human hair belt. And, and the evidence shows that the present-day traditional owners are directly descended from the people who were living there thousands of years ago. The, the archaeologists also found the oldest example, the oldest um, Stone technology in Australia. So that the, the and human. And so this site dates the. Yeah, Sorry? so so the the human the human hair belt that um that they found dates dates back four thousand years and, and it's directly linked to the the traditional owners of to this very day. So these were things that were found in the site. Um, my understanding too, Marcia, is that um, the the traditional owners there had spoken directly to Rio Tinto. And one of their excuses as to going ahead with the blast was, okay, well, we've dynamited the place now. Um, we can't actually reverse that, so we're going to have to continue on with with the blast. But you've you've had advice and you've heard um, contrary to that, that that process could have actually been reversed. Oh, yes. Now, and I've double-checked it. So, you know, Rio Tinto actually did go in and uh, reverse um, a whole area of the area that they dynamited. Mm. Um, so that, so what, what they did, and this is what uh, I find, you know, sickening about it, uh, you know, the duplicity of Rio Tinto in this matter. They told the traditional owners, we can't undo the dynamite. But what they didn't say was that we, we're not going to undo the, you know, deactivate the dynamite in the areas that are not subject to uh, a heritage application. But there was one area up the gorge subject to a heritage application and they went in and they deactivated the dynamite in that area at the very same time that we're talking about. And not only that, Rio Tinto admitted to the Senate inquiry that there were four, four occasions on which they could have stopped the uh, dynamiting of the case. 
And not only that, they misled the traditional owners. They did not tell the traditional owners, as they were, you know, obliged to under any, you know, normal legal standard, Mm. that there were options other than exploding those caves. So that's that's, those caves. that's that's less than acting in good faith. That's actually full on deception. I think so. Yes, that's my view. Yeah, I think it's um, hard to see it any other way. Now you put a you put a submission into that uh, joint standing committee on the destruction of the caves, and um, in the submission, you say that the destruction of the caves demonstrates Rio Tinto had little regard for Indigenous land use agreements. Um, are these agreements actually worth the paper they're written on? Well, you know, um, some of them have worked very well. And, I, you know, I, I did a couple of case studies, in-depth case studies, one in Western Cape York, the Western Cape York Communities Coexistence Agreement back in the 2000s, and also the Argyle Diamond Agreement, Agreement again back in the 2000s. And when I was there, yes, they were working. But that was long before this present regime in Rio Tinto. So you might have noticed in the evidence that uh, there was a dramatic change in Rio Tinto, starting probably in about 2006 and certainly or 2008, around that time. Mm. And then when Jean-Sebastien Jacques was appointed CEO after Sam Walsh um, basically, all of the staff who'd had, who'd pre, you know, had been working in the area of community engagement, implementation of the Indigenous Land Use Agreements were gone, and the whole area um, uh, was, you know, de-established. You no longer had that that kind of expertise in the company, and all it went into external relations. So yep. it was handed over to spin doctors and it just became an ex, you know, external relations exercise yeah, rather than the very serious matter of implementing agreements that are registered in the federal court. They are binding contracts under Australian law. Yeah, you, 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 you particularly point out the, um, the, the change in culture there that seemed to coincide with the arrival of, of the, um, the the CEO that we have to this this very day. Um, they had in the past, as far back as um, 1994, um, had acted in good faith and worked closely with uh, traditional owners on some of their sites. But um, you now say that um, that shift away from working in good faith with uh, traditional owners as partners around some of these sites has now shifted away and what we're seeing now is more spin and um, uh, more sort of uh, slick communication exercises in, in, in replacement of genuine partnerships. I believe so. But all the evidence tells me that that's the case. Um, it's not the case that Rio Tinto had always had uh, good relationships with in Indigenous Australians or other people in the world, for that matter. Um, of course, you know, it was the a previous iteration of Rio Tinto, CRA, um, that um, really stuffed up at Bougainville in Papua New Guinea at the Panguna Mine Mm. and uh, ignited a civil war that raged for over 20 years with a death toll of about 20,000 people 
that we know of. Um, there, there is a lot of um, material on that, that incident and the impacts. Um, there's a very large report done by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And so Rio Tinto changed its... Well, the company changed its name to Rio Tinto. And, you know, after a disaster like that and the uh, world opprobrium, the company had to rebuild its name. So it did that by working with Indigenous Australians to establish these agreements. Yep. And to, you know, start to build expertise in community engagement. So whereas previously they had, you know, six-foot-six engineers with uh, pretty racist attitudes, uh, not much regard for the people of any country where they were operating, all of a sudden they had to uh, bring in people who actually had some expertise in talking to people um, and... um, coming to uh, acceptable arrangements. Um, and, and you know, it was, there was the Marindu incident back in the early 90s. Back in 91, yeah. In, in the Pilbara. Yeah. That was a long battle, and it took years before Rio Tinto was able to improve its relationship with those traditional owners. So what happened there was the, the Marindu site back in, again, in Western Australia, um, Hamsley Mining, which is now owned by Rio Tinto, proposed to destroy an 18,000-year-old sacred site for um, an iron ore mine. And um, uh, ironically, as, as often happens in, in acts and uh, legislation, as you know, Marcia, the Premier of Western Australia at the time passed the Aboriginal Heritage Act, which actually um, counter to the, the title of the act, actually enabled the company to to destroy the sites. And so they've got form on that front too. And it would seem that a lot of the so-called good work that they may have done in terms of negotiating and, and partnering with traditional owners has, has now gone back to further, further back than square one. Yeah. So uh, there's a view amongst people who followed Rio Tinto for years um, that, you know, the old Bougainville crew, the old, you know, that old mining culture mm-hmm. have have managed to claw their way back into power in this, you know, enormous transnational company and all of the people who brought, you know, modern community engagement expertise, social impact expertise, um, evaluation, monitoring, into the company have gone. They, they they even retrenched their cultural heritage expert in Western Australia some years ago. Right. I get, and I guess part of part of the culture around this from um, the mining perspective is that the, the mining lobby now in Canberra in particular is just so powerful that I guess that there's an attitude now that they can pretty much get away with, with anything. Well, you'll remember that the mining lobby rolled Kevin Rudd. Yeah. And he proposed to bring in the mining resource tax. They ran a campaign uh, and uh, elements in his party caved to the industry, but this has always been the case. There's a, an excellent quarterly essay by Judith Brett on the, the coal industry. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, 
head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to the mission on Triple R 102.7 FM. Triple R, I'm speaking with Professor Marcia Langton about some things. Um, there's been calls for an overhaul of cultural heritage legislation across all jurisdictions. Do you agree that that should happen? And do you think that the Commonwealth should lead that process? Um, well, first, I do agree that there needs to be a national overhaul uh, of cultural heritage legislation. Well, you know, the two acts at the federal level, ASEHIP and the EPDC Act, also in the states and territories, uh, well, particularly Western Australia, Queensland and New South Wales, the cultural heritage legislation needs to be modernised. Um, you know, the Cultural Heritage Act that you spoke about, that the Western Australian government introduced to allow the destruction of the site at Narandu, is the mm. same act in operation right. today. Very same um, act. It's a very same act. So um, what I would say secondly, though, is that uh, what we need is a partnership approach. So recently, uh, the federal government and the Australian government entered a partnership arrangement with the Coalition of Peaks, all of the Aboriginal peak bodies, um, led uh, especially by um, NACHO, um, and an agreement was signed to close the gap. Yep. Now... Um, that is an incredible breakthrough in terms of how the governments of Australia relate to Indigenous people. So now there is a formal, signed, whole of government, um, all Australian governments have signed this partnership agreement with the Coalition of Peaks in order to close the gap. So we need a similar arrangement uh, with Australian governments to uh, bring about a... a a national system of cultural heritage laws uh, involving, um, again, peak bodies like the National Native Title Council. Yep. And you would know that there's been an, an alliance of uh, Aboriginal organisations um, with responsibilities for cultural heritage called the First Nations Alliance on Cultural Heritage. That meets almost weekly now. Um, and uh, they've, for instance, um, worked with uh, NGOs to put a... Uh, and, and, and shareholders to put a, um, a resolution to the BHP annual general meeting yeah, now that's cultural heritage. It's interesting that you meet that uh, that you that you mentioned that, Marcia, because uh, what we're now seeing is shareholders from some of the other big miners, like PHP, like you just mentioned, who have actually demanded um, the company immediately put a stop to mining that could dis disturb, destroy, or desecrate Abor Aboriginal cultural heritage sites in Australia until laws are changed. Um, in the wakes of the revelations around the the, the Rio Tinto blast. Um, is that the way forward? Is that the way? Is that one way forward? Is for for shareholders to become active activists in their own um, uh, share portfolios to, to pressure some of these companies to do the right thing by traditional owners and Aboriginal people. Well, I believe it's key to achieving the kind of change that we need, 
And the kind of change that we need is pretty thoroughgoing. So the Western Australian Cultural Heritage Act um, is not only a breach of human rights, it's a breach of, you know, natural justice. It's a breach of, you know, the normal standards that are observed in modern Australian laws. Mm. So, for instance, a very key point is that under the Western Australian Cultural Heritage Act, once the minister has issued a Section 18 authority to destroy, the traditional owners, the Aboriginal traditional owners, have no right of appeal. No recourse whatsoever. Um, none whatsoever. And so, you know, there is an urgent argument to bring quite a number of uh, cultural heritage acts in line uh, with uh, modern-day standards, um, and there are a number of standards. So, for instance, recently, the chairs of the Heritage Councils of Australia and New Zealand issued best practice standards, um, and that's actually uh, been included in one of the submissions, the Victorian Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Council submission to the Senate inquiry has those standards as an appendix. Um, and they're very interesting because they survey all the standards used around the world, the, you know, the standards that are observed by the best international institutions, um, UNESCO and so on, and what the Heritage uh, Council chairs themselves believe are the standards that should be observed in Australia. So it's a very good set of standards that, um, you know, and, and one of the standards is, for instance, free prior and informed consent. Now, you highlighted, um, just in, in terms of the worldview of these things, one of the things I liked about your submission is that you highlighted that um, the government of France forever, um, you know, for instance, would never allow the um, uh, deconstruction of the Lascaux Caves, um, which has about, you know, 600 paintings representing a body of extraordinary art painted around 17,000 years ago. Now, that's like not even the halfway point in terms of Aboriginal culture. But um, what, what is it about Australia that distinguishes us from places like France that value that sort of heritage and, and other places in Europe where we're just got a mindset that, okay, we've got to blow things up for profit and for the economy? What is the difference in mindset? Well, there are a number of differences. One, the Australian economy, and particularly the Western Australian economy, um, is... Um, heavily dependent on mining exports and our state and territory governments, particularly Western Australia, uh, are heavily dependent on mining royalties. Uh, and, you know, mining has been one of the big economic drivers. Mining has been the, um, the industry that has made Australia wealthy and made Australians wealthy. Um, the, the mining boom that ended some years ago, but basically ran from, say, the early 2000s to, you know, around the time of the GFC, um, was the biggest boom in Australian economic history. Yeah. And it made Australians very, very wealthy. And uh, I, I think in world terms, Australia is one of the a small group of states that is overly dependent on mining exports for its economic um, well-being. Um, and, of course, that leads to the distortion of the economy um, and our politics. 
Yeah. And as I say, we saw that with the way that Kevin Rudd was uh, basically rolled by the mining industry when he tried to introduce the mining resource tax. So, uh, you know, there's this problem in uh, mining uh, dependent states identified, you know, in the uh, Nigeria back in the 60s when, you know, oil was discovered. Um, it's called the resource curse. Yeah. And so Australia has a very bad case of the resource curse. But here we go again on another boom. All of the, or some, you know, some of the commodity prices are booming again now. Uh, iron ore and gold particularly. Coal has sunk. Um, and uh, the governments, the Australian governments of the day set their sales according to mining commodity prices. And it goes to Basically. it goes to show too. I mean, you're right. You're right in the submission that um, you know, in your view, the Australian government has been negligent in leaving these type of matters to states that are economically dependent on iron ore royalties, and um, has demonstrated again and again historically that Aboriginal cultural heritage will be sacrificed to secure the fly the flow of mining royalties to the state's coffers. Um, I couldn't agree more about that, but. It, it, it shows a larger problem, a broader problem across society and the economy too, is that we are going through another mining boom, and yet the the disadvantage suffered by those at the lower end of the the economy, um, of which Aboriginal people are uh, find ourselves in uh, time and time again, um, profits are up. The 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 share market is up around the six thousand mark, and yet wages are stagnated. And people, the gap between the the rich and the poor is, have, has never been been worse. So there's also an opportunity to leverage a broader discussion around the devastation around these caves to talk more about not only do companies like Rio Tinto don't give a toss about Aboriginal heritage, they don't give a toss about the rest of us either. Um, I think that's right. Um, it's ironic, isn't it, that the Liverpool Plains farmers in New South Wales have been using for the last few years the very same slogans that Aboriginal people um, used back in the uh, the 70s. Yeah. So that, you know, the, the Liverpool Plains farmers are at risk of having, you know... Some of the best farming land in Australia, and their three metres um, of topsoil in some places. Water supply, sorry, three metres of topsoil in some of those places in, on the Liverpool Plains. I'm, I'm led to believe. Yeah. So really, really good land. So, yes, and you know, they they're, they're concerned about their water supply as well. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, farmers uh, have less rights than we do as, yeah. as Aboriginal people. They don't have native title rights, not that, you know, native title rights have protected much, um, and they certainly don't have land rights. Um, the state can compulsorily acquire their land. Uh, the state issues mining tenements over their land, um, and uh, they find themselves in the same situation that we were in um, back in the 60s, 70s and early 80s, 
Um, and, you know, I think they've discovered that they have a lot in common with us. They want to uh, maintain their farming heritage, mm. you know, and these some of these farms have been in families for five generations um, as compared with the, you know, three, 4,000 generations that Aboriginal people can count um, or, or, or uh, can claim. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and just on, you know, the economic drivers of the destruction of Australian heritage, and I use the term Australian heritage for a reason, but a few days ago in the Australian, there was a very interesting article in the business pages about uh, what is uh, very likely to be the logic behind the decision of Rio Tinto to destroy the Jukun Gorge and mm-hmm. the sacred caves. The, the way that the iron ore is uh, um, manipulated, um, you know, at the mine site and at the ports for export is that it's mixed, so grades of iron ore are mixed and Rio Tinto's um, market in China is for a mix called the Pilbara mix, and that's a, you know, a mix of you know, a, a grade of iron ore. It's high grade iron ore. Mm-hmm. They had run out of high grade iron ore, and there were two or three places where they could get the high grade iron ore. And in order to maintain their place in the market, their status in the market, and to keep the contracts coming in from China. They had to um, access the ore body under the Jukun Gorge caves. Right. So there's the so, real motive. There's the real motive. That's, there's the real motive right there, as explained in the Australian. Most likely, that that it makes a lot of sense to me. Seems to add up. Yeah. Um, you were approached by the CEO and the chairperson of Rio Tinto to um, participate in an internal review. Uh, you declined the invitation. Why? Uh, so, Daniel, uh, I did not attend any of those meetings alone. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I uh, invited uh, the chairman and uh, others from the Native, National Native Title Council to attend meetings with me um, because I believe in transparency. Yeah. And, you know, the, you know, the um, democracy lives in the sunshine. Human rights live in the sunshine, you know. Um, I Yes, I was approached to be a part of the Rio Tinto Board's internal review. I put a number of um, propositions to Rio Tinto, that is that the review must be transparent, the report must be published, the reviewers must have access to all of the documentation and um, uh, relevant staff. Um, and so on, you know, what any reasonable person would want in such a situation. I got no straightforward responses. Yeah. I was brushed off, I believe, and so I declined to be involved. And um, it was actually a board resolution, as I understand it, that an internal review be conducted by a board member and an Indigenous person. And because of my 10 years of research on... uh, 
Indigenous, well, agreements with Indigenous people, including um, these Indigenous land use agreements um, with mining companies and other resource companies, uh, you know, they clearly felt that uh, I was the kind of person that would bring um, Indigenous or Australian credibility to the exercise. Of course. But I was not convinced that this was a genuine attempt to... Well, first of all, discover what happened, to conduct a thoroughgoing investigation and to report honestly. There were just too many uh, ways in which they managed to sidestep the conversation and so I had no confidence in what you've they been, were putting to me. You've been and around yes, long enough to know, to to know when people are actually engaging with, with you and others genuinely. Um, just the last question on, on this particular um, issue and then just one or two more and then I'll let you go. Um, uh, the submissions to the Joint Committee, uh, you know, effectively to, to the Commonwealth Government and to the, the Commonwealth uh, Australian Parliament, what steps can be taken by the Commonwealth Government to preserve places of high significance as Aboriginal cultural heritage? Um, well, I'm not a lawyer. But I understand that it's entirely possible for um, Minister Susan Lee uh, to take steps to protect cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. And it's entirely possible for her department to assist applicants um, to seek, you know, the highest possible form of protection from the federal government. Um, and a number of submissions to the Senate inquiry set that out. There are flaws in the federal system as well. Um, but, you know, an Australian government, the Australian government has used its external powers un, uh, you know, under the Australian constitution in the past. Um, you'll remember that, well, maybe you're too young, um, Gareth Evans, when he was um, in the Keating government, used the external powers to stop the destruction of um, cultural and natural heritage in Tasmania. Yeah, I actually do Yeah, yep. John Howard used the external affairs power to implement the Northern Territory Emergency Intervention. Yep. Now, just think about what, uh, what has happened here for a minute. We say 46,000 years. It's very hard to imagine what that even means, doesn't it? I mean, it's kind yeah. of a magical figure. Exactly. Yeah. But it, it represents, it represents um, what we now know to be about three-quarters of um, the history of human occupation of this continent and therefore a very large part of human history itself. Yep. So, therefore, the Jukun Gorge Caves and the wonders that were revealed by the archaeologists uh, put it in the category of world heritage. It was, I believe, the, minister, the federal minister's responsibility to ask somebody in her department to start not only um, protecting the site using Commonwealth powers, but also to make an application for UNESCO World Heritage Listing. 
It's just a pity that the... the These caves were older than the Lascaux caves in France, which are regarded as world treasures. It's just disappointing that the caves didn't sit in a um, in a marginal seat because I'm sure plenty would have been done if uh, if uh, if they had been. Um, it is quarter to eight here on Triple R one hundred two point seven FM. You're listening to the Mission. My name's Daniel. I'm speaking with the one and only Marcia Langton. Now, before I let you go, Marcia, um, you're very passionate, as um, am I, and um, um, most people of sound mind about the Black Lives Matter movement. We saw last week that the Department of Public Prosecutions have um, refused to take any further um, potential charges of people, um, of police officers that um, the coroner had pointed out were responsible in some way for for Tanya Day's um, death. There's been 438 deaths since the Royal Commission into Black Deaths in Custody. Um, Why are we not getting any traction on this? Uh, it's because black lives don't matter. Yeah. <laughs> um, very simple, really. Yeah. Um, people think it's complicated. It's not complicated. I have, you know, detailed my concerns about this in my Thea Astley address, which, you know, was a virtual um, address for the Byron Bay Writers Festival this year. Now, in the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody recommendations... There are detailed recommendations on uh, duty of care. Now, do our police and correctional services have a duty of care towards their detainees? Yes, they do. Every person who enters into detention, whether at the hands of police or correctional services, is entitled to expect to come out alive. Mm. And so too their families should be able to expect that they will come out alive. Being arrested should not be a death sentence. Now, I um, was as shocked as anybody at the outcome um, with the prosecutor, well, you know, refusing to lay charges. Now, I think failure to act in such a manner as to ensure full duty of care for detainees, whether they are black, white or anything else, is a fundamental legal duty of police officers and correctional services officers. And I do hope that the Day family have lawyers who will appeal this decision. Yeah, I hope they have lawyers too, and I hope that um, they have the financial support to be able to appeal that decision because it's um, heartbreaking for uh, the Day family, of course. Their strength and resilience has been absolutely amazing during this time, Um, but it's also heartbreaking for all of us in the Aboriginal community when you see time and time again generations of families being left behind with um, the deaths of people in in custody, um, gone too far, gone far too early, shouldn't have been gone at all and um, it's something that <clears throat> really ignites, ignites the, the, the belly and the spirit of um, Aboriginal people everywhere across this country. Now before I let you go um, Marcia, your books 
Welcome to Country and uh, welcome to Country for, um, for, for kids are still available in all good bookstores? Yes, they are. Good. Well, do yourself a um, favour, everyone. just a small way that uh, Marcia has uh, tried to contribute to the education of this country and it's available for adults and for, for children. Um, I know it's in my local bookstore so if uh, people are interested just uh, go online, bookstores are still delivering and um, and uh, have, have a look because it's a, it's a ripper book. Um, now last question Marcia before I let you go, um, we had a late night text conversation some months ago, you probably can't remember but we went through um, a list of all of our favourite blues artists, and um, <laughs> I want to I want to ask you uh, just a simple um, response. Who who do you prefer more, Big Mama Thornton or Sister Rosetta Tharp? Uh, um, the first one. Big Mama Say Thornton again. Yeah, Big Mama Thornton. Yeah, Big Mama Pound Thornton. Dog. Big Mama yeah. Thornton. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Now, because I'm a terrible radio presenter, I haven't lined up a big moment thought and track after this, but doesn't matter. We'll go to something just as good. Um, Marcia Langton, thank you so much for your time. Um, I hope when stage four is over, we can get to uh, walk in the park sometime. Uh, that'll be wonderful. Thank you very much for having me on your program, Daniel, and I uh, hope you're doing well in these bizarre times. Yeah, I'm doing well, fighting fit. So um, thank you and look after yourself, please. You too. Okay. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>